you can't pinpoint just one thing, um, but it's been very cool to see all of the research come out and start to identify all of these different things that put this puzzle together of why the turkeys are declining. What is up, everybody? Mark on the mic here, joined by Mr. Sam Solholt across from me virtually. We're going to be talking today about uh, a topic, a handful of topics that I know are near and dear to both of our hearts, and that's uh, wild turkey conservation. Uh, you know, uh, recognizing that we're seeing some declines in certain areas, uh, evaluating and looking into the why behind that, uh, and some things that we as sportsmen uh, can do to combat that. And uh, one of those things is going to be predator predator management. So that's not the only thing affecting wild turkeys, but we're definitely going to speak that today. But Sam, uh, welcome. It's good to see you. It's been a minute. It has been a minute. Good to be back on. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. I noticed I, I commented before the, the show that uh, I think it was maybe... Uh, you know, uh, subconscious. We're, we're we're both wearing uh you know black on black, black shirt, black hat. It's almost like we're in mourning of some of these wild uh, turkey population declines. So uh, very uh, yeah, very that, appropriate. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's been a uh, a little bit of doom and gloom. You know, these last few years as more research has come out. So yeah, I think I think the black on black was very fitting. <laughs> but <laughs> cool, man. So you know, jumping jumping right in here. Well, you know what? Actually, since it's been a minute, let's uh, give me a little. What's up, man? Let's let's do that. You know, I'm I'm trying to cut sure. to the chase here, but what's shaking? What have you been up to? You know, uh, I thought that I couldn't travel any more than I had in the past, uh, and then my wife started doing travel occupational therapy, uh, which has been awesome. But we we bought a house in North Dakota and have been renting that. We bought a house so we could be more nomadic, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so we have that up on short-term rental, Airbnb, Furnished Finder, VRBO, and then she has been doing travel occupational therapy. So we, uh, she did her first rotation in Idaho. We were out there for four months, and then she took a month off. And then we've been in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri the last few months. We're here till the end of February. And then um, but yeah, between her traveling and then me traveling for work and then us traveling for adventure, I have been, uh, if there's a road out there, we've driven it. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. That's cool, man, though. You definitely get to see yeah. uh, a good part of the country and, and really not just visit, probably kind of immerse yourself into these, you know, microcultures that, you know, you see across the United States. So that's neat. Yeah, it's been very cool. And then other than that, just, you know, a lot of shooting, a lot of photos and talking a lot of conservation and Thanks in part to you guys raising lots of money for conservation. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a really good. I don't know what I don't know when the last podcast we did together, but it's been since then. It's been a good one. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, speaking of conservation, now now we can jump up. We got the formalities out of the way. We can we That's can right. jump right in. So let's talk. I mean, let's talk a little turkey. I mean, I think to me, like the turkey conservation success story is like one of the greatest ever told, right? I mean, we went from, you know, like I said, I'll use my my point of reference. Uh, I grew up in Washington State. There was a time that turkeys weren't even a thing. And then they were became this, wow, we have turkeys, this mysterious thing where, you know, if you knew somebody that killed a turkey, it was a big deal. How'd you do it? You know, where'd you find them? Uh, and then it went to there everywhere. And it's mm -hmm. like, congratulations, we did it, everybody. Uh, in fact, to probably some people, like even a nuisance, right? Like, oh, we got too many of these darn things. And now in some areas, though, we're starting to see this dip. And yes. so maybe let's let's talk, and, and you can probably speak to that 
trend more than I can, but what, so what's going on there? So it's, it's certainly a combo of factors, right? Um, and, and like you said, we had this, this giant boom and a lot of that came from, uh, when they were trying to resurrect Turkey populations, they were, uh, trapping and translocating, uh, turkeys all over the country, you know, so they would, they would put out a giant row of corn or whatever feed it was. And they'd wait for, you know, a big pile of turkeys to be feeding on that. And then they would use basically jet nets and, and trap turkeys and then transport them. Um, cause originally they were trying to transport eggs and then incubate them and then let go, you know, poults. And they were, they had all these different things that they were doing originally, but it wasn't until they actually started transporting like groups of turkeys that we started to see this population expansion. And, and like you said, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember what the low was on the number of turkeys, but the, the number you always heard when, after this explosion was like from whatever it was, 30,000 or 50,000 turkeys, or whatever it was to 7 million turkeys nationwide. So, I mean, 7 million turkeys, like it's hard to even wrap your head around how many birds, uh, that, that really is. But like you said, they were everywhere. You know, you had, you know, farmers and ranchers complaining. I know one farmer buddy, like they would eat down his feed pile by like a foot every winter, you know, and he had whatever, 150, 200 turkeys. So, um, but yeah, we started to see this decline and a lot of it started in the Southeast, you know, which is really like the stronghold of like the turkey hunter, right? It's mm-hmm. the, that's, that's, that's where like you have died in the wool turkey hunters. Those guys have been living through it and coming up in it. It's where all of like the, you know, godfathers of the turkey, you know, turkey world come from. Um, but they started to see this dip, you know, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, Arkansas. Um, and they started to figure out what the different factors are. And a lot of it is habitat. And so you have not only habitat loss, but you have changes in habitat and changes in, uh, prescribed fires, changes in logging tactics, changes in, you know, it's, you have, you start to have a lot more broken habitat and turkeys are fairly adaptive. I mean, you, you know, you'll have people say like, Oh, we got turkeys in town, you know, like there's turkeys on the golf course, you know, like, and yes, turkeys can survive, but in the wild, like, you know, outside of cities, if you start to have more broken habitat, you have less areas for birds to nest properly. And then you have, you know, more, it's easier for them to be, um, subject of, you know, predation and, and hard to find places to nest and or whatever. But so it's, it's this really big combo as well as hunting, you know, like we, you know, like as Turkey populations exploded, uh, tag allocation went up, season structure changed. So you had these really long seasons, you know, you can archery hunt early. You can then shotgun hunt for a long period of time. You can, you know, in certain States you could kill, you know, three to five turkeys. Um, and you know, in a lot of the research that's come out from people like Dr. Mike Chamberlain, um, and, and other people like that, they started to figure out, okay, like, um, here's how the social structure works of the Turkey. And if we kill dominant birds early in the season, it messes up the entire ladder of like the social structure. And so they have to restart that pecking order. Um, and so there's, it, you can't pinpoint just one thing. Um, but it's been very cool to see all of the research come out and start to identify all of these different things that put this puzzle together, why the turkeys are declining. For sure. For sure. Can you dive in a little bit bit deeper if you can on, you know, that pecking order? Like, I feel like we use that term, even just like in general vernacular, but I mean, that is something that is like a real thing with, with turkeys. And then also maybe, um, some of the stuff you might know on like gobbling activity, as far as like hunter pressure and, and gobbling activity. 
for sure. Yeah. So the pecking order. So a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll hear people start seeing strutting turkeys, you know, or way before the season, you know, uh, late February, March, you know, like there'll start to be a lot of strutting activity. And what's happening is it's the, basically the lex or whatever, or the, the groups of turkeys are forming a pecking order. So it's figuring out which birds are the dominant gobbler in the area. And the dominant gobbler is going to be the one that's going to breed the most hens because the dominant gobbler has the strongest, or at least, you know, in their head, they've got the strongest DNA. So they're going to be able to breed more hens uh, successfully. Well, what happens is if you, if you shoot, say a dominant bird, let's say you set out a strutter decoy, you, you know, you go in and you, you are a good hunter and you kill a dominant bird early rather than just the next bird in on the totem pole, next bird on the ladder becoming the dominant bird, it completely messes it up and they have to restart figuring out the pecking order. And so it delays the breeding. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty major deal. So rather than, you know, basically the dominant bird, you know, breeding hens early. And so you have, uh, basically the nest drop all at the same time, uh, you start to have staggered nest drops and what that allows for is increased predation. Um, yeah. So the pecking order is a big deal and, and you've started to see changes. So, uh, they've, a lot of places have started to push seasons back. I think Alabama and Tennessee, uh, push seasons back two weeks. Um, Georgia may have done the same, uh, but it's a way to allow a lot of these dominant birds to breed before the Turkey season even kicks off. Um, and then you asked about, uh, gobbling activity and one of the biggest, uh, basically indicators of gobbling activity is hunting pressure. So as you know, when, when there's no pressure in the woods, um, uh, Chamberlain's group has done research where they put these microphones way up in the tree to collect gobbling activity. And what they've, what, what it has shown is that as increased pressure happens, basically gobbling activity goes way down. And that gobbling activity is, I mean, it's needed for the breeding because then, you know, birds are locating where they're going to be, where they're going to breed, you know, and hens call back and it's, you know, it's the whole social structure uh, playing out in the woods right above you. And obviously there's nothing better than sitting in the woods and listening to that rolling thunder of, you know, a whole bunch of birds up and down the ridge, like sounding off. Um, but it's been, it's been pretty cool to see this research come out and figure out, okay, like how can we best, because it's a crossroads, right? So you want to have high hunter success, high hunter, you know, like you want people to enjoy the hunt. Um, but you need to find that perfect crossroad where the birds can do what they need to do. And so we can continue to have this experience in the future. Um, so I think they've done a good job of, you know, starting to work with state agencies on, okay, if we can push the season back, you know, even a week or two, it's going to make a big difference in the breeding activity. For sure. You know, and uh, one thing that you made me think of, and I guess I'll ask this in the form of a question, but I, I would imagine, you know, some of these states that had these seasons that start, you know, really early where you might be, you know, disrupting that pecking order with harvest. But I would have to think also you are losing time where if a hen, you know, is successful in, in with a nest, or I'd say at least it's successful in creating one, but she loses it it gives her more time to, to start another one too. Right. Right. Exactly. It gives her way more time to re-nest. Yep. So, yeah, I think that's, that's super important. What's going on with, um, you know, even just, uh, what weather patterns, you know, I mean, I think that would probably have an impact on, on, uh, turkey nest 
uh, production or success. What, what do you know there? You know, I guess I haven't looked into a whole lot of like the climate change, weather pattern change. Um, I guess we've, it kind of depends on where you are, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a, if you have a mild winter, obviously more birds are going to make it through the winter or as far as like, you know, the first year birds. Um, yeah, I guess I haven't, I, I can't really speak to the weather pattern on that. I probably should have done a little more research on it. But. Oh no, I kind of, kind of probably surprised. It's just like something that like popped into, into my mind there because I know you hear like, oh, we had a wet spring or, and you know, not necessarily attacking it from like a climate change perspective, but even just like a year to year, like we have variants oh, in, sure. you know, springs and like harshness of winters. Like, you know, we're in, we're in a pretty good cold snap right now, but like, how long is that going to last? You know, we're supposed to be in the forties next week. Are the turkeys going to be fine? Like, you know, just the stuff that right. rolls through my brain on a daily basis, but yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good point. You know, and the big one, the big one on, on turkeys, uh, is hail. So what? if you have, yeah. So if you have a big, um, you know, if you have a good hatch even, and then like a big hailstorm rolls through in early June or whatever, when all of those poults have been born, um, like, uh, in the black Hills in South Dakota, they had two springs in a row where they had a major hailstorm in the middle of June, basically like prime, like all the poults have been born and they were just running around on the ground and hailstorms came and absolutely knocked them down. So that, that can be a big factor. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. And I guess that's probably like a regional thing, depending on the landscape. Maybe if I get a hailstorm, you know, I guess potentially here in Wisconsin where you have more tree cover or something like that, less, I would assume less susceptible, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and then you don't want too wet of a spring, you know, so you want, you want it wet enough where there's going to be bugs and things that are hatching for these poults to be able to feed. But if you get too wet, it'll, you know, basically drown them out. Um, so yeah, there's, they're definitely susceptible to, I mean, there's, they're a tough bird, but they're definitely susceptible to different weather patterns. And I know, you know, further North, it seems like, you know, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, it seems like the birds are a little bit more adapted to like that real cold weather. You know, there was, there was one winter where we had like sustained, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota had sustained wind chills in the negative sixties for like oh. five, six days. And I figured birds were going to be dead, you know, and come that spring, it was like nothing had ever happened. So if, but like, you know, talking to people in Nebraska, they had a real bad cold snap a couple of years ago. And one of my buddies, he had like 12 turkeys die just from you know, like just cold. So I think depending on where they live, you know, in the country, it seems like they're more adapted to different weather patterns. Interesting. You were talking yeah. when we were talking about, you were talking about, you know, broken habitat, but what, like, what would, what makes good nesting habitat or, and then if a person has a place or a piece of property, they can manage, you know, what things can they do to facilitate good nesting habitat? Sure. Um, so, uh, grasslands is a big deal. So you obviously have to have roost trees, right? So you have to have, you know, big mature, whether it be oak, cottonwood, you know, pine, um, big mature trees for, for roosting. But as far as nesting goes, you need to have good cover. So you need to have thick undergrowth, you know, that, that real open floor, old hardwood growth is not good net nesting habitat. You know, a lot of, a lot of things are going to nest in like that fringe habitat, um, that is, you know, tall grass, tall brush, real thick stuff that birds can get into and, and create a nest and lay on where they're going to be protected from not only the elements, but from predators, you know, stuff that's places that is going to be harder for, um, for predators to find them and eat, eat the, eat the eggs or eat the bird or, or both. Yeah. You know, I hunt or have hunted 
historically in a fair amount of like, I guess all, all types of turkey country in some ways, but definitely farm country, right? Mm-hmm. Where the agriculture is from a, I guess, a food component, like a very big attractor slash benefits the wild turkey. But I'd also wonder if that same, you know, land that's good for agriculture would actually also be good for grass for raising turkeys. So it's like on one end it's providing food, but on the other hand, like it's getting taken up to that could be potentially good nesting habitat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, of course it's, it is good. It is good food and good scratch ground and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but it's definitely taking away from, you know, what was once on the range, natural grasslands, um, you know, and a lot of that stuff that's industrial egg, you know, agricultural land now used to be, used to be trees used to be whatever, I mean, depending on where in the country you're talking about. Um, but yes, it, it does. There's kind of, it, like you said, it's two sides to that coin. You it's know, a yin it, yang. It, yeah. And it, hopefully my comment, right. like I'm thinking like, like, well on a podcast, that's what I do a lot of times. I just think out loud. Um, but also like, I don't even want to come off in any stretch of the imagination is like anti-agriculture. Like we need less oh, agriculture to make more no, turkeys, no. you know? And I don't no. think you took it that way, but I don't want anybody else to take it that way, you know? But it was just like a strength, you know, like you said, there's a yin and yang to it that provides on one end, but you know, potentially, you know, with, um, we're just so efficient these days, you know, with how right. we can do agriculture that maybe it's not, um, as far as like nesting habitat, you're having less of that fringe stuff that you're talking about. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's not just affecting, you know, the wild Turkey, like it, the, the fact that, you know, um, plows and everything, everything's so much bigger and with GPS and, and all the things they're able to farm end to end. And so you, you do have less ditches, you have less, you know, like you have a less buffer area. Um, and so, yeah, certainly not anti-agriculture. I mean, have family that is in agriculture. We all have friends that are in agriculture. I mean, I grew up in South Dakota, went to school in North Dakota at North Dakota state, which is an ag university. Uh, so have so much respect for people that work in the ag industry. So no, definitely not anti anti agriculture, but it does take away some of that prime nesting habitat for turkeys, ducks, uh, pheasants, you know, you name it, everything. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's just a, there's so many factors in all of it. And I think, I think what it really comes down to is figuring out how to one, protect the habitat that we have left. Um, and then two, improving the habitat that we have left and the acres of grasslands, woodlands, all of it, uh, to the best of our ability, because if we can produce more wildlife on the acres that we have available, I think that's better for everyone, including the wildlife. For sure. For sure. What, what are some things that like might be, <clears throat> I mean, I'm in guilty as charged. Like I've taken for granted, like these, like, you know, for a long time, these booming Turkey populations. And I don't want to, you know, it's not all negative either. Like there's still a lot of stable, you know, Turkey populations, um, you know, turkey hunting is still, you know, thriving. But I think as sportsmen, like when we see like things happening, we want to get ahead of the curve, not mm-hmm. be behind it and have a, you know, a real problem on our hands for, you know, for us, for the wild turkey, like for the populations in general. Right. But um, like, what are things that people can do on their property to enhance nesting habitat? Uh, I would say plant grasses and thick cover. Um, you know, if you can, if you can have like dedicated, you know, real thick places for birds to hide. I think that's a, that's a big one. 
trying to think. I mean, you can manage predators on your own property. I mean, that's going to be a, a big one, like, uh, and, you know, kind of like doing your part to like manage everything as a whole, rather than just pinpointing one or another. Um, Oh, what else can people do? I'm, you know, I, I've, I've seen, someday I've I'll, seen some someday I'll own my own pizza property that I can manage, but right now I've just been playing on the public. So. I, right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm talking hypotheticals here myself. Yeah. Uh, I've seen uh, some guys talking about doing like prescribed burns to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, you know, I'm assuming that's just, um, well, uh, the, there's a, I forget his name, Kyle. Um, he's the native plant talk on TikTok, and he does like the native plant habitat project on Instagram. He is super fun to watch. And a lot of what he talks about, uh, in the prescribed burns for turkeys is what it does is you have invasive grasses, invasive species of plant life, and that'll take over. And if you do a prescribed burn, basically you can burn off that invasive species and the native species will come up and shade out, uh, the invasive species. So if you can, if you can burn it at the right time to allow the native grasses to come up, you're going to be a lot better off rather than having basically, uh, plants that don't benefit the wildlife. Um, yeah. So I know NWTF has been making a big push on fires too, to have more prescribed burns and kind of burn off a lot of that invasive undergrowth as a way to allow those native, uh, plant species to come back up. Gotcha. Yeah. Like you said, that's something I've heard, but I didn't necessarily know the why behind it. So, and it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Right. And, I'm, and yep. I imagine all those nutrients from the burn, they're going back into the ground and, you know, helping those native plants come up. So um, kind of a, a full circle thing there. So you brought up you brought up the uh, the predator management side of things, which I guess as as a outdoorsman, you know, hunter, angler, uh, I've probably said it on like nine different podcasts. I keep wanting to get into trapping and then I never take the initiative to get my trapper's ed so I can actually trap. Uh, but um, what's going on there? Because I always want to, like, and it sounds like, you, you know, to me, it's like, oh, this is another way that I can maybe extend my season, engage in an outdoor activity, uh, interact with wildlife and wild places, but maybe do a few good things for the wild turkey. So what's going on there? Yeah. So over the past few years, <clears throat> I mean, I didn't grow up a trapper at all. So like, it's just been the last couple of years that I've kind of like started to dip my toe into it. And I want to preface it by saying like, as I've done this, I feel like a kid that's just starting to hunt again. Like it has been so much fun to learn this new skill. And like, when you walk into the woods, you look at it completely differently than I used to. Um, like you start to have to look at all of the tiniest little details, uh, which has been, been really fun, but yeah, like, so I started to watch guys like Dave Owens, you know, the Pinhoti project, uh, Cameron, uh, the Godfather was his handle for a while. Um, he's been on a tear this year, but guys, the hunting public, you know, everyone's been started to like, started to kind of talk about this, you know, okay, like we're, you know, save the polts. And so started to look into it a little bit and, uh, ground nest predators is one of the major reasons that when you have a good population of birds, whether it be turkeys, ducks, pheasants, whatever it's, if you have a large population of ground nest predators, they wreak havoc on, on nests. And so started to look into a little bit more, um, you know, it's for where I grew up, uh, raccoons didn't really even exist on the great plains until the 1950s. So it's not like, you know, birds of the past had to deal with, you know, a lot of ground nest predators. So it's a, it's an easy way to get involved in the management. It's a really fun thing to do, you know, late winter, super early spring, kind of leading up to nesting season for all these birds. Uh, and 
yeah, it's, it's not an expensive thing to get into either. I mean, you just need to pick up a few traps and some marshmallows for bait, (laughs) (laughs) busted out my stuff, but yeah, you can, uh, you can get into it relatively inexpensively and, uh, do a lot of good for, for wild bird populations. Yeah. I mean, you brought up, you know, ducks and turkeys there, but so like what, you know, these, um, you know, predators like, um, coons, um, or, or other ones, but I think we're, you know, primarily talking coons here, but like what kind of impact, you know, are, are they having, like, what are, what are we seeing on the landscape as far as like how they are impacting the wild turkeys? Sure. Yeah. So the, one of the interesting things is raccoons do not hunt nests. They don't, they don't specifically go out and, and like look for a nest, but what they will do is they basically wander in circles. Right. And so if, uh, um, if a turkey or a duck or whatever sets up a nest somewhere and a raccoon happens to wander by, they're always going to work downwind of cover. And so if they happen to wander by downwind of a nest and they smell it, they'll go directly to it and they'll eat all the eggs. They'll destroy it completely. Um, so just some anecdotal evidence from a research project that I went and shot photos on. It was a duck nesting research study, but I think we can extrapolate that to the wild turkey. So there was, um, they had control fields where they were counting the number of nests, the number of nesting success. They had um, fields where they would do uh, township trapping. So just like roadside trapping, basically trying to cover the entire area, trapping along, you know, culverts, ditches, you know, which is a easy, there's a lot of grasslands. So there's typically a lot of predators that move through there. And then they did hotspot trapping. So let's say you had a big township block, which is 23,000 acres but there's only like 3000 to 4,000 acres of prime like nesting habitat. So rather than doing a full township trapping, they would do hotspot trapping. And I was talking to Hunter uh, Veltkamp, who was the in lead in charge of the, running the crew, just asking him like different numbers, like, okay, how successful is this field? And he's like, well, in the areas that we do hotspot trapping, we have seen uh, up to 60 to 70% nesting success uh, in those areas where we hotspot trap. And then in the where, places where they township trap, where they're still killing a lot of predators, you know, it was somewhere, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's probably like 20 to 30%, maybe up to 40% nesting success where they were taking a lot of predators, but not like targeting them. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, what about the control field? And he was like, Oh, zero. So even if ducks were forming a nest, it was basically 0% success rate on actually having a hatch, which like when I heard that, it like just like blew my mind, like that predators could be that successful. Now, obviously this is related to ducks, but if you have like, you know, one drainage where turkeys roost and whatever, or they're breeding, you know, in your area and like all of the predators are going to, you know, basically key on that. And they're going to wait for birds to start dropping nests and they're going to work downwind. And I don't, I don't know what the average number of eggs a season that a raccoon or a possum or whatever eats, but I would venture to say it didn't Mike Chamberlain say it was like 80% of the, no, let's see, maybe it was 40 to 60% of all nests get eaten before they even hatch. So, um, yeah, they do a lots and lots of damage. I mean, that's the, those really are astounding figures, you know, and then the nests that, you know, do hatch or are considered successful. It's not like every egg in that clutch is making it either. No. Yeah. I mean, even if they, yeah, right. Like exactly. Even if they do hatch, I don't remember the percentage of poults 
that even, you know, make it through their first year. It's very, very low. I, you know, like the, the odds of, you know, first having a successful nest being laid, then making it all the way to hatch, then making it through that first season. I mean, it's, I don't know what the percentage is one in a, you know, one in thousands. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, Um, it's crazy. And, and, you know, like I said, we've been, um, you know, privileged to see these, these wild turkeys, flourish you know now we're starting to see that this kind of you know some some setbacks if you will but i definitely after hearing some of these facts and figures and in the science and the data um i look at turkeys differently now like when i see a turkey i'm like you know i've always thought they were special and neat and i love hunting them and and, and being where they live and interacting with them but i look i'm like man that is amazing like the odds of that adult gobbler or adult hen being alive not that high like that's a very <laughs> Like, very special, special thing, for sure. And with that, so if a person is looking at, like, okay, well, you know, maybe I want to get in to do a little bit of trapping here um, and and maybe, uh, you know, uh, benefit, you know, wild turkeys, uh, engage in that activity, <clears throat> what's the best way to go about that? Like, what, what have you found in, in kind of your, I guess, uh, journey into trapping? Yeah. So the, the easiest traps to get into are the dog proof traps. Um, so there's several companies that make them, but basically it's just, uh, I don't know if like I'm trying to describe it the best I can. Uh, but it basically it's just a cylinder with a spike on the bottom, uh, that you, <clears throat> and it has a trigger at the bottom. So you set the trap and then you put bait underneath that trigger. And when the, the, it's a really small hole, so dogs can't, you know, if you're trapping in in or near residential areas, you have less of an opportunity to catch somebody's pet, which is, you know, a big deal. So, um, but yeah, it's a real small hole and there's a trigger at the bottom. And when they reach down to grab and they pull up on that trigger, basically it's a, it's a cuff, you know, basically holds their paw in there. And then you can go out and, uh, get rid of the, the raccoon or possum or whatever you catch in, in that trap. But they're, they're super easy to use. They're very cost effective. They're like, uh, I think they're 14 bucks. Like if you go to Shields or, you know, if you buy a six pack, um, you know, you can get six pack for a hundred bucks or whatever with a set tool and the whole thing. Um, but yeah, if you get, you know, pick up a six pack of traps and then really the only bait that you need, you know, I've heard everything from cat food to sardines to whatever, but the best that, you know, everyone says marshmallows work. So you just use little mini marshmallows and put a few underneath the trigger. And, you know, when I was first getting into it, I was filling the trap too full and I was having, you know, where a raccoon would come eat some of it, but not, you know, or I'd have mice come steal all the bait or whatever, but, um, yeah, you don't need to fill it all the way full. And I've also heard of people taking like one big marshmallow and they'll put it underneath the trigger. And so it's hard, you know, harder for the raccoon to pull up on it. Gotcha. And then put a couple mini marshmallows on top of that, you know, give them a little bit of a, a teaser. And then when they reach back down, they pull up and get caught. Um, but yeah, that's a very easy cost-effective way to get into it. And, uh, they're very successful. Like, and then you're going to want to set up, you know, if you have a Creek, you can set up by, or shelter belts along cornfields or ag fields is a big one. Uh, brush piles, you know, old abandoned buildings, you know, basically anything that looks like good raccoon habitat, which is, you know, all of those things, <laughs> brush piles, like, you know, if you can find cottonwoods or big stands of trees, you know, where there's going to be den trees, um, you know, anything in and around that is going to be good. Uh, yeah. And just look for, you know, if you can find, you know, in the winter, if it's a lot of snow, it's harder to find, but as spring comes, if you can look in like deer trails and game trails in the mud, you can find raccoon tracks pretty easy and set up along those. 
Yeah, I'd have to imagine if a person also was. <clears throat> I mean, raccoons—they live a lot of places, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, if a person was thinking like, "Oh, you know, I want to trap with the intent on uh, benefiting uh, turkey nest production." keeping in mind where these turkeys are likely nesting and trapping, you know, I guess in somewhat of a closer proximity to those places might have a greater impact. For sure. Yeah. It's kind of like taking that hotspot trapping idea from the duck research project and applying it to turkeys. You know, if you have, if you have an area where you're like, Oh, I know, you know, 15 birds roost in this, you know, Oak tree or this cottonwood, you know, if you can, figure out travel routes, little game trails and stuff along, you know, in that area where you're not going to be in there disturbing the turkeys every day. Um, but if you can be in there, you know, trying to pull some of those ground nest predators out of that area, you're going to start to make a big difference. Um, yeah. And it's, it's the, the crazy thing about it is, you know, I've talked to several conservation groups about trapping and like Delta waterfowl is very heavy on the trapping side. But if you talk to some other ones that they, seem like, you know, the scalability and the cost of trapping is a deterrent for the organization itself. So I think it's going to take, you know, doing podcasts like this and talking about, you know, how the general hunter needs to get involved in this to make a difference. It's going to take a culture shift uh, now, you know, because fur prices and everything have gone so far down, you don't have full-time trappers that are targeting raccoons. Um, And so it's going to take, you know, everyone to like basically do their part. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want me to talk about my earn a gob idea or not, but <laughs> definitely. But I mean, you bring up, you bring up a good point, you know, with trapping is, you know, as you know, fur prices have gone down for a variety of reasons, you know, hopefully we see them come back someday and that there's always a little bit of ebb and flow there, uh, depending on, on the market. But, um, there's no, there's frankly, there's no monetary incentive for, you know, a trapper to go through the work of trapping these animals and, and, you know, um, commit the resources to it for a return. It would be a losing proposition, you know, as far as, you know, on the, on the money side of things. So, uh, like you said, I think that leaves it up to, you know, sportsmen like you and me, uh, if I can get off my, you know, you know what, and, uh, finally get my, my, uh, trapper's ed certificate. Maybe this will be the, the public, um, when I finally say it publicly again, that I'm going to do it, uh, but, um, but yeah, let's talk about that program. And then I do want to, I've got a few other, uh, you know, trapping slash hunting questions when it comes to, to coons as well. So, well, let's, let's stay on that line and then we can get to the earn a gob later. Cool. Well, so like, for instance, like where I'm at right now, don't have my trappers ed and definitely interested in it. Want to get into it, but like, you know, I think we actually have uh, a season here. It's going to close in February. Um, I believe. So don't quote me on that, but, um, but you can hunt them too. And that can be really exciting and potentially have an impact on Turkey poults. So what have you, what have you done on, on the hunt side of things? So the hunting side of things actually is to me is more fun than the trapping as far as like the engagement with the animal. Um, so if you have an e-collar, uh, I use the lucky duck revolt. Um, and I have never seen an animal so angry at a sound like when it comes in. So I, some buddies of mine uh, filmed a predator hunting TV show for the grind. And so that's where I first learned about calling, you know, calling raccoons and how, like how awesome it can be. And so I got a e-collar and it was 
a March day or whatever is finally like warm enough to like go outside in North Dakota. And I called the buddy. I was like, Hey man, you want to go try this call? Like I just, just came in the mail. Like, you know, it's finally whatever warm enough. Let's go give it a shot. So we drove down to a public area and I was like, Oh, there's some cottonwoods. So like we literally parked the truck, walked 50 yards, turned on the call. And, uh, it was probably, uh, you know, you, you, on raccoon stands, you typically do if, if, if nothing's running in, in five to seven minutes, like you, you can just move on to the next spot. But it was about the four to five minute mark. <clears throat> My buddy goes, oh, I think I just saw one. And this raccoon basically jumped out of a hundred foot cotton tr- wood tree. I mean, just like sprinted down the side of it and then ran 200 yards and tackled the call. Like that's like, that was my first raccoon calling experience. And it like, after that, it, it, you know, it's, it been, you know, I've done quite a few sets now, but it's very high success rate. If you, you know, go to places where you like, Oh, that's probably a den tree or there's a den tree in this area. Um, but it is so much fun. Like I've had them do that. I've had them come ripping in and tackle the call. I've also had them come in, you know, I've had two or three raccoons come in at a time where they're a little bit more cautious, but you get the call out there with the little tail spinning on the top of it and, uh, you know, play the right sounds is just playing raccoon fight sounds. And man, if it, it is not hard to get them fired up and come sprinting in. Gotcha. Gotcha. One, when you're talking about like the numbers of, of coons you're encountering, the, the aggression that they're not that hard to find. I think that also speaks to the number that are on the landscape, right? So, yeah, um, Yeah. I know, I know Clay Newcomb, it just kind of jumping back to that number of raccoons. So like basically as um, agriculture has moved its way across the country, um, you know, in places where they planted tree rows for soil erosion or whatever, which, you know, basically planted raccoon habitat. uh, Clay had a good stat. He was on the Rogan podcast and he was talking about how in the hardwoods in the East, it used to be, it was like one to two raccoons per square mile. And as agriculture has come up, that number jumped. It's like 50 to a hundred rec up to, up to, you know, what are 50 raccoons per square mile in some areas and, and even higher that in other areas. So like the population of raccoons has absolutely exploded over the last, you know, 75 years, which is, yeah, but there are a lot of raccoons out there. Yeah, I mean, you think like anytime you drive down a country road at night, like not uncommon to see them, you know, or even mm-hmm. I've been out turkey hunting and calling turkeys and seeing raccoons during even during daylight hours and things like that. Or as you know, as it starts to wane into the afternoon, you see them during deer season. I've had them climb up the tree next to me, come out of trees like there's definitely a lot out there. And in a lot of ways, really not a lot being taken off on the off the landscape to, you know, help help balance you know, all these wildlife populations. Right. Yeah. There was a, there was a study done or at least a correlation done between Missouri between the number of raccoons registered through trapping um, or, and then the number of poults like uh, that are per hen. And, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, it was, you know, like there was 250 to 300,000 typically per year raccoons that were registered um, because fur prices were really high. And as that dropped off, basically it's like, it, it's a, looks like a direct correlation between the number of raccoons that are being taken off the landscape and the number of poults. So like in the last couple of years, the number of poults per hen was 0.8 poults per hen, uh, which is not sustainable. I mean, you're going backwards on that. So it's, 
you know, it's not as cut and dried as that, but it's a pretty easy to see that they do have an impact. For sure. And you're bringing up a state like Missouri where, you know, heck, not that long ago, when you heard or somebody talked about like, oh, you want to go hunt eastern wild turkeys? Like Missouri's the Mecca, right? Oh, that's that's the Mecca. I, I had buddies that would go hunt Missouri and they'd be like, there's nothing like it, man. You get up in the morning, you just hear gobbles as, as far as you can hear on ridgetops. Um, you know, you got to hunt Missouri. And now you're like to hear it described as that or even just be that and, you know, showing indications that it's not like that and declining and you know you're talking about populations that aren't enough to replace you know themselves um it's just it's like uh a very i guess um concrete indicator and like you know it's not just like anecdotal it's like what you do have that right i think that's extremely Mm -hmm. important but it's like no we've done you know, people have done research and we have, you know, essentially a before and after, and you can see some strong correlations there. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, like you said, in states like Missouri, I mean, you know, we had this COVID boom of number of hunters in the woods and the, the correlation between the number of hunters in the woods and hunter success, or like the number of turkeys that were killed in the state of Missouri, uh, like was so far off proportionally to what it had been in the past that it's, you know, like, obviously scientists and hunters alike are, are very worried about like the future of the bird in the state. So I think, but it has been, it's been very awesome to watch the sportsmen and women kind of rally around this and start to go, okay, like, what do we need to do to protect this for future generations? Like what can, like, you know, what are the changes we need to make and calling on changes? You know, there's, there's been a lot of stuff happening the last few years where people are like, Oh, maybe this tactic isn't good to use, you know, on public land, maybe we can change, maybe we can shift this around or change, you know, like we're willing to work with it and and help. Like we're not just out there to kill everything we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and if you looked at the people, you know, I'd say who are, who are initiating this, who are involved, who are talking about it, who are conducting the research, you know, once again, and, and hopefully it becomes everybody. Like, I'd, I'd love, like, you know, you're talking about, you know, some, some of Clay's messaging getting out on the Joe Rogan podcast. Fantastic. That's going to hit, you know, such a wide demographic versus, or diverse, you know, demographics versus, you know, at times, um, you know, as hunters, because that's who we are, but we, could, we can get caught in our own echo chamber, right? And you can definitely have an impact, but, but the more people that we get caring about things like this, the better. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We need to kind of spread that message among hunters and then, you know, just tell your friends, <laughs> you know, tell your friends that might be on the fringe of just the outdoors. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, we need to, yeah. Like we just need to keep spreading that message of this looking at everything as a whole and not just hyper-focusing on whatever you love to chase. For sure. And, and you know, like a person who might not understand trapping or the importance of trapping, you know, what a great opportunity to explain to them. They might be like, I can't believe you're trapped. You know, like, well, wait a minute, you know, here's, here's some of the why behind it. You know, let's look at the data. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know all these things, you know? So exactly. definitely a yep. great opportunity there. So Sam, you, you brought up, you brought up your, uh, the program that you're, that you're trying to, you know, get, uh, get started there. Let's, uh, let's dive into that. Cause I like it. I love the idea. So, uh, I was trying to come up with a way to like, how do we encourage people to, you know, really get into this, uh, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that it, it, you know, it takes everybody being involved. So uh, I'm going to implement it on myself. Um, it's going to be earn a gobbler. So, 
you know, if I'm, if I'm planning on hunting a few States this spring or whatever, I am going to try to trap or call or whatever X number of raccoons or ground nest predators per bird that I'm planning on, on hunting. So, um, you know, if that's, if that's, if, if for you, that's five, if for you, that's 10 and for you, that's 15. Um, you know, obviously a lot of times the more, the better when it comes to ground nest predators, but, um, yeah, so I think I'm going to try to do 10 ground nest predators per bird. I plan to hunt this spring. So I've got some work to do. Uh, but it's, uh, it's going to be fun. Like, I think my skill set as a woodsman will continue to grow as I do this and start to learn different things about the landscape. And, um, I'm fired up about it. I was actually going to go set traps at, uh, before the podcast this morning. And then I was looking up the regulations and you have to have a special use permit on conservation areas in Missouri. And so I need to call the manager of the conservation areas in this area and see what that entails. Otherwise I need to go find some, uh, different land, uh, core land or whatever to go throw some traps up on, but yeah, I'm, I'm fired up. It's February. It's time to get after it. For sure. For sure. And I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, the trap side of things. And I think if you are seeking permission on a piece of private, um, you may have to educate the landowner too. They might have pets or some things like that. Like, hey, I don't want to have some traps out there, but like, like you said, you know, they're dog proof traps, you know, that's, they're called that for a reason. I've also, I've also heard them called coon cuffs, but that might put a person's mind at ease, you know, and, you know, help them you know, make the decision like, oh, you know, yeah, here, go, go out there, have at her. And you might have to explain the why behind you're interested in doing it too. Cause they might love wild turkeys and say, well, geez, go get them all, you know? For sure. Yep. I think, I, I mean, honestly, I feel like you may have to do some education, but I do feel like trapping is a very good initial entrance into a relationship build with the landowner because uh, you're not asking to go chase big deer. You're not ask, you know, you're not trying to go kill a turkey or just, you know, if you're trying to like, I just want to go spend time in the woods and make a difference. I think that leads to, you're going to meet a lot more people doing it that way and asking to, you know, oh, I just want to go call raccoons or I want to go set a few, you know, dog proof traps. I think that will get you access to a lot of stuff that you might not have. If you were like, Hey, I saw a big deer in your field. You mind if I go set up a tree stand? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, so yeah, some, some ancillary benefits potentially there as well, but yeah, whether you're, whether you want to go out on, on public or, or private, or you have your own piece of private, um, man, yeah, I would definitely, and I'm talking to myself right now too. uh, encourage folks to get out there, you know, maybe learn how to trap if you haven't done that before, or, uh, you know, get yourself a good, uh, e-caller with, uh, some, some coon sounds on there and, uh, and get after it. So you said, and actually, I'm going to back up here because I know you mentioned one sound, uh, the coon fight. Is that is that your go-to then? Yep. So the the Lucky Duck Revolt has three different coon sounds. There's uh, it's like raccoon fight one, raccoon fight two, and then baby raccoon. Um, and so the I just like took the um, for there's a video called Raccoon Ruckus uh, okay. on there, and they they talk about which sounds they use and what volume and whatever. And so I've just kind of like used that tactic and, uh, you start with raccoon fight two, run that for a minute, minute and a half, and then switch to raccoon fight one, run that for a minute, minute and a half, and then switch to baby raccoon. And if you've had nothing come in after whatever, five, six minutes, just pick up, you know, run down the road, whatever, half mile to the next stand of big trees and do it again, or, or go find a brush pile or, or whatever. But, um, yeah. And then you can run that thing on loud, uh, you know, like, um, 
I, I don't know what the volume goes up to, but I, I'm not running it at full volume, but you can, you can make it super loud. And if anybody listening to this has ever been in the, in the deer woods, if they're, you know, deer hunting or whatever, and, and you've heard a raccoon fight, you know, how loud that is, uh, like, you know, it might be 300 yards away and it sounds like it's right next to you when they're just getting after it. So you can yeah, run the call loud. Yeah. We, uh, he talk about that, that coon fight and I've, you know, got an e-collar with, you know, those sounds on it, but I did, I have heard that my buddy and I were actually turkey hunting and I'd never heard anything like, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded mm-hmm. like the most horrible thing. Like, and we got up on them and it was three coons just engaged in a big tussle that, uh, <clears throat> none of them made it out of. Yeah. It is vicious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, we, we, I deer hunted Kansas a few years back and I heard a raccoon fight every morning and evening that I was in the tree. So if that goes to show, I'll tell you how many raccoons are out there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very vicious sounding thing, but man, when they come, when those big boars come barreling into the call, it's pretty cool. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So I was trying to I was, start, I was trying to close it out. I thought we we're closing out, and then I had a bunch of other other questions. But man, if whether you want to call them, whether you want to catch them, uh, number one, you're gonna have another great time in the outdoors, and and uh, might save a, a wild turkey or two, and uh, and help uh, these uh, some of these populations uh, recover. That's right, Sam. Appreciate the time, man. It's always good. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'll I'll uh, I'll try to keep people updated on my raccoon journey this spring. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'll uh, I'll do I'll do the same, and yeah, keep me posted on that. And uh, looking forward to catching up with you again sometime here soon. Sounds good. All right, man. Take care. Good luck out there. There you have it, folks. Thank you very much for listening. As usual, give this video a like if you liked it. Comment something below, and give us a subscribe to the Vortex Nation podcast channel. It would mean a lot to us. Also, why don't you give us a follow over on Instagram while you're at it, at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'd love to hear from you over there, and we'll keep you updated with all kinds of cool photos and videos from our adventures that we do here. Otherwise, we will see you on the next one. Thank you again. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. Have a good one.